This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. There's a new book out looking at the history of Seattle and the Northwest music scene from the late 50s to mid-60s. It's called Stomp and Shout, R&B and the Origins of Northwest Rock and Roll. I'm joined by the book's author, Peter Bleka, to talk about it. Hello. Hi, Emily. Thank you for inviting me to KEXP. So um, this this book starts by exploring the jazz scene in Seattle. And at one point, you talk about how in 1947, the Seattle Police Department started to crack down on after-hours venues, so like where a lot of jazz was taking place. And that year alone, they raided 90-some nightclubs. And I thought to myself, 90? In like the late 40s? Like how <laughs> how did Seattle have the ability to maintain that many clubs. Well, there's a tradition there all the way back to the Prohibition era, uh, which started in uh, 1916 here in Washington State when alcohol was outlawed. And there had always been nightclubs and dance halls and ballrooms and hotel uh, functions and things like that, events, uh, taverns. But uh, Prohibition caused even more to be founded. So by World War II, the 1940s, the population of Seattle had increased so much with people uh, migrating here from the South uh, mainly and uh, from the Midwest as well. And they came, these people came with their families to uh, work in the shipyards and at Boeing and, uh, and then take military jobs as well. So the population increased a lot and the uh, nighttime entertainment opportunities uh, rose along with them. So there were many, many, many dance halls and nightclubs going through that era. And through your research through this book, like how would you describe what that scene felt like at the time? Well, there was always an energetic uh, jazz scene here from the late teens and early 20s on. And a lot of it was based uh, in the Central District and along Madison Street, East Madison. There were dance halls. And then along uh, South Jackson Street where there was, uh, I think, almost 40 nightclubs running uh, concurrently. You talk about lots of different venues in this book, but if you were to choose just like a handful of them, like maybe two or three, that really interest you in your research when you were learning about them that you wish were still around today, mm. what would those venues be and, and how would you describe what you learned that they were like? Well, I can only imagine what they were really like. Uh, most of them were long gone before I was even born here in Seattle. The uh, Black and Tan nightclub, uh, named because it was tolerant of a multiracial audience, unlike many other places in the core of downtown Seattle that were racially segregated. Uh, so Black and Tan, the old rocking chair, that place was so cool that that's where uh, Ray Charles, when he showed up in town as a teenager, he played some of his first, very first gigs there. Just grab your hat and start with a rocking chair. There are surviving photographs of the exterior and the interior of some of these places. Uh, the old rocking chair was actually in a two or almost three-story house, just a good old-fashioned uh, clapboard house. Um, this was also a time of the tolerance policies going on. So, so and what does that mean, the tolerance policies? That means that the police and the mayor and the city council tolerated crime if they got a piece of the action. So, oh, okay. So payoffs were going on to the beat cops a lot so that these places could either stay open later than they should have. Uh, in some cases, they were selling alcohol when they weren't licensed to, or they were allowing people to bring in their own alcohol, or uh, uh, smuggled alcohol from Canada was being served when it shouldn't be. And um, also, uh, the tolerance policy did allow there to be taverns and nightclubs that allowed uh, homosexual people to party on without 
without too much harassment. Um, but it was an onerous policy, and the pressures were not easy on the owners of these places. They just had to put some cash in a paper bag each week and wait for the bag man to drop by and pick it up. So... Beyond the music, beyond the frivolity and the fun and the dancing, you know, till too late in the morning, there was an underside to all of this as well. And the musicians remember it. A lot of the musicians from back in those days remember running out the back door and fleeing for their cars when the raids were happening. And so uh, there was plenty of excitement to be had. One other venue that you talk about in this book a lot is Birdland. What was that place like? Well, Birdland has uh, one of the better stories behind it, and thank you for bringing that up. It was at 2203 uh, East Madison Street. It's right where there's a Safeway now, right at that little niche, that little corner there. And um, it became the center of rhythm and blues and then finally rock and roll during those early years of, of rock and roll. And uh, all sorts of stars. This was a time period when all sorts of uh, stars, mainly black rhythm and blues stars, were touring from California in particular up the Pacific Coast and to Seattle. And a few of those uh, guys became uh, really iconic uh, influences on the younger generation of teenage rock and rollers that was just starting to bubble up. James Brown or Hank Ballard and the Midnighters or Big J McNeely and his band, really important, famous in the black community, especially of Southern California. But when they came up to Seattle, Richard Berry was another one, the guy who was responsible for bringing Louie Louie to Seattle. Those guys came up here and played all the time. They played here for years and years and years. And in time, as that first generation of teen rock and rollers came up, they, would, they were able to get into Birdland. Uh, even though they were underage, and so they got to uh, witness these bands and be inspired by their music. And that's one of the main points behind my book, Stomp and Shout. It was these black, uh, rude jazz, it was called, not polite jazz, it was rude jazz or rhythm and blues musicians and songwriters that uh, had an inordinate uh, influence on the first generation of Seattle rockers. There is something on your mind About the way you Look at me There is something on your mind, honey Now the way you look at me book starts kind of in jazz then transitions to to rock as as kind of the the years go on yes so kind of staying still in the jazz world um you talk about the role of musicians unions in seattle and how it kind of upheld segregation at the time can you talk a little bit more about that yes well from the beginning uh in this area there was one musicians union 76 and it formed i think in the 1890s it basically was white-oriented, as were the majority of the population here and the majority of the musicians. But uh, as the population changed here, there was understandable resentment that blacks and other others were not allowed to join the union. Um, and if they did somehow squeak their way in, like a few Asian musicians did, they faced the reality, which is that for the next bunch of decades— the Musicians Union Local 76 controlled the lucrative downtown core of Seattle. The white musicians, they got all the great jobs at the theaters, all the hotel ballrooms, all the best and biggest nightclubs, all the taverns downtown, on and on and on. They just It was a turf war that basically went on. And um, in time, the black musicians did organize their own Musicians Union, Local 493, 
and they uh, carved out their own turf, what was left, basically. They got South Jackson Street at the far southern end of downtown, and they got uh, East Madison Street, which was the northern border of Capitol Hill, and there was a black business district there. There was butchers, theaters, all sorts of cafes and and restaurants that were... uh, you know, black-oriented, and um, so it really was the southern end of Seattle and that and that borderline strip there of East Madison, and then a few things in the central district as well. But uh, that went on for decades, where there was two. It was two cities. It was two towns. It was two unions. It was two different worlds. And uh, the young musicians around town, both black and white, knew where the hit music was being played. So, in some ways, that's why Jackson Street is a legend to this day as an incubator of the first rhythm and blues sounds. I would also add to that that it took until 1958 for those two musicians' unions to merge. They had been talking about it, negotiating with each other since, I think, about 1950, but it just kept getting bogged down. Some people were dragging their heels. And then finally, in 1958, the two musicians' unions uh, did merge, and a lot of people will tell you that it's still was not a uh, fair and even playing field after that, that uh, certain musicians got assigned the best jobs and others were sort of overlooked. So there was plenty of healing that needed and probably still needs to be done in that realm. I'm speaking with Peter Blake about his new book, Stomp and Shout, R&B and the Origins of Northwest Rock and Roll. So in the book, you kind of move on from jazz and we start talking about rock and roll. And there's so many bands that you talk about in this book. And I'm curious if you can kind of share some bands that you feel are super notable to Seattle and the Northwest music history that folks might not know about. Sure, I can try that. To me, the most important bands of the first-generation rockers around here were bands that had multiple saxophones. That was a key part of their sound, and that they would include the one that was probably the first one, Little Bill and the Blue Notes, out of Tacoma, uh, who had a couple-year head start on a lot of the rest of the bands that followed in their wake. Another one was Clayton Watson and the Silhouettes, who were out of Centralia. They don't get a lot of notice, but um, they were sometimes billed as uh, the Northwest's first rock and roll band. Following those guys came, you know, just a whole parade of other bands, the Whalers out of Tacoma. The other point I make is that our bands were saxophone and keyboard driven. We produced a bunch of great guitar players, everybody knows that about Northwest Rock, but um, all the early bands... 99% of them probably featured saxophones and keyboards. So in 1958, I think the Whalers showed up as crosstown rivals to Little Bill and the Blue Notes in Tacoma. And from there, it just exploded. Suddenly then up in Seattle, you had the Frantics, who had a saxophone and keyboard. You had the Dynamics, who had a saxophone, a trumpet and keyboard. You had the uh, Viceroy's, who had saxophone and keyboard. And, uh, you know, the king of all of these, the Dave Lewis combo, had two saxophones and a keyboard. They were the house band at Birdland that we've already mentioned, and they were probably the prime influencer from back in the day.
those are a lot of the key bands of the time. You also have a Spotify playlist that you put together called Stomp and Shout, based after this book that features some of these artists that you just mentioned. Talk about a song or two on there that you feel like, again, really exemplifies the Seattle sound. Sure, let's look at one of the first ones, uh, Little Bill in the Blue Notes, I Love an Angel. Two things are important about it. One is it's got the killer three saxophone horn break in the middle of the song. And the other important thing is that it was one of the very first local rock and roll ballads to become a national and international hit. It went top 40 starting, I think, in about April of 1959. And then it uh, it crossed over to uh, Europe and became a hit in England and I think in France. It's one of the first ones that inspired a ton of other local kids. Hey, let's make a band. Let's make a record. We can, we can have a hit. Why did this happen? The other early Northwest rock and roll song that's interesting uh, for our purposes here is uh, Ron Holden and the Thunderbirds' Love You So. It's important for some of the same reasons that that little Bill in the Blue Note song was. It features a multiple horn sax break in the middle of the song. These guys are 16, 17 years old, basically, recording this thing, so it's just an example of, uh, in some ways, a little bit inept (laughs) rock and roll. They didn't have the listening background that a lot of kids have today of having heard decades of rock and roll. Uh, So these guys, you know, it's a little shaky rhythmically, but uh, the vocals are fun, that sax thing is great, and it became a national, international hit. It uh, hit number one on Seattle's KAYO radio, and then it went up and down the West Coast, and that became a national hit, and then it went over to Europe, where in England in particular, the song Love You So became a top ten hit, I think, and then the disc jockeys over there flipped the record over and made the flip side My Babe, which rocks even a little bit more, they made it into a hit as well. So another example of teenage Seattle kids uh, striking it at the right time with the right sound. Peter Blake about his new book, Stomp and Shout, R&B and the Origins of Northwest Rock and Roll. So what I also learned in this book is that Louie Louie is a cover of a cover of a cover of a cover. <laughs> like when I think of Louie Louie, I think of the Kingsmen mm-hmm. out of Portland. Talk about the origins of that song, Louie Louie, and how it just took off here in the Northwest and why. Yes, the origins of Louie Louie. That whole story is uh, one of the great examples of how we imported something from elsewhere and turned it into our own regional thing. 
Richard Berry was a rhythm and blues singer who had been fairly successful on the uh, Central Avenue scene in Los Angeles. That's where all the rude jazz and rhythm and blues action was happening in California in the 1950s. And he went on an occasional tour with other groups. And it was in, I think, September of 1957 when that troupe of players came working their way up, San Francisco, Portland, Tacoma, Seattle. But when they showed up in Seattle to play and he had his new song, Louie Louie, uh, it just so happens that uh, a bunch of kids in the audience were very impressed by him and his band and that song. And uh, we know for a fact that uh, among the teenagers in the audience listening that night at the Eagles Ballroom down here at 7th and Union, was Jimi Hendrix. Him and his buddies and some of his bandmates at the time uh, used to go to all those shows. After that, it didn't take long at all. That song must have really had a big impression on people because uh, suddenly over at Birdland on East Madison Street, the great R&B nightclub, the Dave Lewis combo picked up that song and started playing it. And because they were the ringleaders on the local scene, a bunch of other young musicians saw them playing it. And it just became a song that needed to be played at all the dances. And so, you know, that's 1958, 1959's going by, 1960's going by. And by that point... Little Bill and the Blue Notes down at Tacoma have picked up the song. Another important band in town here, the Playboys, had picked up the song, and then the Whalers picked up the song and started playing it, and it was them, it was the Whalers who took it into the studio first. They took it into the same studio in West Seattle that Little Bill and the Blue Notes had already been in recording, and they recorded their version of it. What they didn't do, though, was release it right away. They had a teenage band argument. How are we going to credit the record? And so they sat on it for six months and didn't release it. And suddenly they discovered that Little Bill was recording his version of it across town. And so they rushed their version out. Little Bill put his version out. Uh, This is all in 1961 now. And uh, the Whalers version became a number one hit through most of that year. And then uh, the World's Fair happened in 1962 and KGR Radio in Seattle and KOL Radio, I think, they both grabbed the song again. Two years in a row, it became a number one hit. It just became the signature uh, rock song of the entire Northwest. So now we've got it up to 62. That's about when down in Portland, two bands that were rival bands down there, the Kingsman and Paul Revere and the Raiders, both glom onto the song at the same time. Those two bands decided to go into the studio independently and record a version. In the same month, April 1963, the Kingsman went in the studio down there and recorded Louie Louie. And a week later, Paul Revere and the Raiders went into the studio and recorded it. So now we have at least five versions of Louie Louie by local Northwest bands all fighting it out. Everybody knows what happened after that, that the Kingsman scored the big ultimate hit, and uh, some of those other versions are not as well remembered, but (laughs) they're all fun.
And then, at one point, Indiana's governor banned the song from radio play, and then the FCC, the FBI, and the U.S. Postal Service got involved. What happened? How did it become such a saga? <laughs> well, it's another long story that I'm going to try and tell short, but it, it's that old pattern of some concerned citizens, some parents, writing their congressmen and their senators and their chief of police and their mayor, and that's what happened, that it was in, from Florida to the Midwest, parents were getting upset about this song because, and I remember as a kid on the playground uh, in grade school at the time that there were rumors going around that the song's lyrics were dirty, and we barely knew what that meant, but we, it, we knew that that was attractive, that something was going on with this song. Other people across the nation, kids, uh, took it a step further and were transcribing by hand with their pencils on paper what they thought the lyrics were. And apparently some parents got a hold of those little notes and some of those lyrics were fairly graphic of what the, they thought the singer was singing, what they imagined, what they hoped the singer was singing. And that led to people writing U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, they wrote uh, J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI. They wrote the mayor of whatever town and the governors. And it was Governor Matthew Welsh of uh, Indiana who ran to the cameras and he wanted to have press conferences and talk, talk about how all this needed to be squashed. And, um, you know, the story goes on and on and on. But that is true. There is a 120-some page FBI file that was pried out of the FBI 25 years ago that makes for hilarious reading because it has a lot of those nasty lyric notes that in there that were confiscated by parents from their kids. And uh, you have all these befuddled FBI agents not knowing what to do with this thing that they, they try playing the record fast and they try playing it slow and upside down and backwards every which way to try and decipher where are these dirty lyrics and they just could not find the dirty lyrics. So uh, that's how it ended was uh, uh, after about a three year, I think, investigation, uh, they ended up, the government ended up concluding that there were no infractions of any laws and the song was allowed to go on its merry way. <laughs> that's amazing. Whose version of Louie Louie is your favorite? I like the Whalers version for being the pioneering first rock version of it, and and I like Rock and Robin's vocals the best. But you know, the sentimental favorite has to be the Kingsman's version. I just like all the flaws. You know, <laughs> it's the worst drumming possible. I'm, I'm a rusty old drummer, and I've tried to perfect the drumming on that song, and I can't reenact it. So uh, that and uh, just the harsh vocals on that. Uh, it's been written about many times that poor Jack Ely, the singer of that band, not only had braces on his teeth, but uh, the engineer in that recording studio in Portland had the microphone up towards the ceiling above the whole band. So Jack Ely had to stand on his tiptoes and sort of yell up at the microphone and in addition to that, the drummer at some points either drops his sticks or hits a rim shot where he didn't mean to, and so he yells out a nasty word. So yes, I like that just for the, the uh, amateur quality of it. It's immortal. You have a chapter towards the end of the book called um, The Northwest Sound. And in it, you quote some people who said the Northwest had a sound and also some people who said it should have been the biggest music in the country or another person who described the Northwest Sound as unprofessional. That if you wanted to actually make it commercially, get away from the Northwest Sound because it's unprofessional. How would you describe the Northwest Sound in the late 50s to mid 60s that you write about in this book? 
Well, I consider the original Northwest Sound to have been a uh, distinct strain of uh, substrain of rock and roll. But what differentiates it from other regional scenes and sounds is that it, it was uh, it descended from rhythm and blues and rude jazz. Uh, rude jazz is uh, sweaty jazz when the guys are on their knees at the edge of the stage blaring their saxophones into the audience's faces and they're singing about, put your red dress on, baby, we're going out tonight. You know, uh, it was dance jazz. It was not quite rhythm and blues yet, but it had a beat to it. And uh, it's what inspired that generation of uh, pioneering rock and rollers around here to, to form bands and realize that just because they were a junior high kid or a high school kid st- stuck in the high school band playing saxophone, <laughs> that there was more to saxophone playing than doing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Stars and Stripes Forever. And also, a lot of this rhythm and blues, the lines they were playing, the musical lines they were playing, were kind of easy. They were not complicated. It was not John Coltrane, you know, it wasn't Pharaoh Sanders or anything like that. It was uh, simple lines that were repetitive. And that uh, must have been attractive for the young musicians realizing, oh, we can do this too. We can, we can sort of rock this out. Okay, let's give it to them right now. I've been speaking with Peter Blecka about his book, Stomp and Shout, R&B and the Origins of Northwest Rock and Roll. Thank you so much for sharing all this history with us. Thank you, Emily. Great to be here. That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.